Welcome to the Three Martini Lunch. Grab a stool next to Greg Corumbus of Radio America and Jim Garrity of National Review. Three Martinis coming up. Hey, really glad you're with us for the Monday edition of the Three Martini Lunch. Good, good, and crazy martinis for you today. And very exciting breaking news as we get started here on the Three Martini Lunch. Jim, we've seen hints about it. We've talked about it a little bit. But tomorrow's the day. Your new book is out, uh, Gathering Five Storms, uh, the new novel in the Dangerous Click series. And so uh, we might have a little more to say about that on the actual release day tomorrow. But uh, good luck and hope, hopefully the pre-sales are going well. They are, Greg. Thank you. Every time you mention it, I don't have to. <laughs> I've already had a few readers like, why are you always promoting this? Because I don't have a sales team. I don't have any grand publishers with PR teams and stuff like that. If you know an author, you know somebody who has to be their own publicist and hype person. I'm sorry. That's just the way it is. You know, no author can count on the world just happening to stumble over his offerings. So if you don't like it. Sorry. It'll end someday. <laughs> Yeah, there you go. Well, when I first said that we got big breaking news, you might have thought we were talking about something else. And we are. That is our actual first good martini today. Dr. Anthony Fauci is finally leaving at the end of the year. It's not today, unfortunately, but he's leaving as head of uh, the NIH Office on Allergies and Infectious Diseases and as Biden's top you know, pandemic advisor, whatever he is, medical advisor, three years ago. Anthony Fauci was a guy who showed up on local radio talking about allergy and flu season, and not that many people knew who he was. He obviously burst onto the scene with, with COVID, and uh, Jim, he lied to us from the start about masks. We didn't need them. Then we do need them. Uh, then he was silent about which protests were okay under COVID and which ones weren't, depending on your politics. Uh, the shutdown protest versus the George Floyd protest. He, he did not get involved with that one. And I think he lost some credibility there. We found out that he's argued for really draconian lockdowns that even Joe Biden didn't go for, much less Donald Trump. Uh, But perhaps the thing that drives people nuts, uh, us included, is the fawning coverage, the fact that he could do no wrong. And I think it finally went to his head if it wasn't already there. This is just one clip of uh, Fauci's fake humility talking about how people, uh, well, were fawning all over him. It's called the Fauci effect which is sort of like, you know, as trust me, I'm, I, I don't get excited about that. <laughs> I mean, it's nice, but I mean, it's, it's I, I, people go to medical school now, people are interested in science, not because of me, because people, most people don't know me, who I am. My friends know me, my wife knows me, but people don't know me. It's what I symbolize. And what I symbolize in a in an era of the normalization of untruths and lies and and all the things you're seeing going on in society from January 6th to everything else that goes on, people the craving for consistency, for integrity, for truth, and for people caring about people. Oh, my word. Get over yourself. Jim, I know he's got four more months on the job, but when he finally leaves, I want to be there like George Jefferson and just whipping the door shut. <laughs> Um, Few people have spurred such a change in public opinion, because I think if you look back to March, April, maybe even into May 2020, probably most folks on the right either were fine with Fauci, liked Fauci, found him this reassuring, clear, uh, very knowledgeable voice on matters related to COVID, or they're probably pretty neutral 
it was only you know, month by month, year by year, that he kind of turned into the national nag. And maybe part of this is, as you mentioned, he turned into this full spectrum celebrity. Um, there are a few things in this life that really bug me as being sacrilegious, but I think political prayer candles are one of them. And of course he had them. I went looking and they have, they have uh, Dr. Anthony Fauci action figures. Once you become the kind of figure who has a lot of merchandising, like Han Solo or Captain America, right? Then all of a sudden, I think it is just almost a formula for this person to lose touch with reality and to kind of become less and less uh, willing to hear criticism and things like this. And I feel like over the last, certainly in the last year, maybe going back beyond that, there's been more and more coverage of, uh, you know, your garden variety, not jobs, your the folks who were setting death threats against Fauci and all that kind of stuff. And the media loves to talk about this. I suspect they really like talking about this because it discredits the people who have much fairer and much more legitimate criticisms of Fauci's statements and decision-makings and things like that. Uh, you mentioned the reversal on masks, which I think is one of the earliest and most glaring one. But, you know, later on in that interview with that New York Times reporter, Don McNeil, I want to say it was, that he basically said that he was adjusting what it was going to take to reach herd immunity based on what he thought public could handle hearing. Um, it was not necessarily what he actually thought, that he was calibrating his answers in order to give the public the message he felt they needed to hear instead of what the truth is. I think it's a very dangerous impulse, even if it's well-intended. Um, and this, you know, this is kind of the first glaring thing where he kind of openly admits he's not giving us 100% the pure truth. Um, eventually, people filed FOIA requests for his emails, and it was very clear that there was this symbiotic relationship with reporters who just flat out adored him. Uh, I think more significantly, there were some glaring evasive answers about whether U.S. taxpayer money ended up financing gain-of-function research at the Wuhan Institute of Virology. And in fact, you know, Anthony Fauci has been a rather full-throated defender of gain-of-function research. And you don't have to be some crazy paranoid conspiracy theorist to say, how, how wise is it? How, how acceptable is the risk of taking existing viruses and deliberately attempting to make them more virulent and more contagious. Isn't this sooner or later rolling the dice that at some point something's gonna get out of a lab and maybe one day we have a terrible situation like a pandemic, which may well have occurred in the circumstance with the Wuhan Institute of Virology. Um, then later on, you know, when he, he got fully vaccinated, but he was still walking around wearing masks and somebody said to him, is this, you know, really something you needed, you felt a, a need, did you feel not safe unless you were wearing a mask. And he said it's a version of, before the CDC made the recommendation change, I didn't want to look like I was giving mixed signals, but being a fully vaccinated person, the chances of my getting infected in an indoor setting is extremely low. By the way, that's another statement that looks pretty different from you know August, 2022, where lots of people who were fully vaccinated and fully boosted ended up getting it during the Omicron wave. In fact, I know a whole bunch of folks who've ended up getting it uh, this summer, they were indoors. So it's a question of whether you consider that safe or not. But it's always been this sense that Fauci is calibrating what he tells us based on what he thinks we need to hear and what he thinks will most influence our behavior instead of giving us the raw data, giving us the truth and letting us make the decisions for ourselves. Whether he intended to or not, he became the face of the of the lockdown mentality. He was not nearly as uh, strong in his pushback against the teachers unions I would have liked. He was not nearly as strong. He, he did criticize he had very mild criticism for the George Floyd protests. I mean, really, if you pressed him on it, he would say, yes, there's a certain amount of risk. But he was certainly not 
front and center saying, no, getting out together to, to a George Floyd protest is as dangerous as any other outside of activity, which in the summer of 2020 was largely banned. And I think Fauci's mentality is a little bit of how he ended up in a state in fall of 2020, and in some places well into 2021, where strip clubs were open, but schools were not. That was an appalling set of circumstances. And Fauci, with all of this authority and all of this media adoration, could have been the guy who could have pushed back in another direction, and he did not. So I don't see him as this heroic figure he once was. Um, I think he's a very you know experienced doctor who turned into um, a guy who the media just felt like he was you know handing stuff down on stone tablets from Mount Sinai. So uh, he's overstayed his welcome. I think fame was not good for him. And at this point, it is good riddance, Anthony Fauci. Very well said. Very well said. All right, Jim, time for our second good martini now. And man, we were struggling to find good martinis most of last week. Then we had three on Friday. We get two today. And Jim, one of these people is going to be probably happy tomorrow night. But uh, it's primary day in Florida and primary day in New York tomorrow. New York for the um, congressional races. They did their state races earlier in the uh, cycle for some reason. Uh, And when it comes to uh, New York's 12th congressional district, they're going to have a far left Democrat uh, representing them. But that doesn't make it any less fun because the way that the courts drew the new congressional map for New York State means two longtime Democrats. And as you point out in the morning, Joel, today, 76 and 75 years old. They've been in Congress for 30 years. Uh, Carolyn Maloney and um, Jerry Nadler. Jerry Nadler, we know, of course, from the House Judiciary Committee, and he goes all the way back to the Clinton impeachment on the Democratic side and so forth. And so, um, you know, we can probably applaud when either one of these people uh, gets beat. And there is a young upstart in this race, so it's possible that both of them go down, although I think that's unlikely. But what you chronicle today, Jim, is how these two longtime colleagues and allies uh, once they found out that their political lives were on the line, they've really gone after each other. Maloney is uh, calling Nadler essentially uh, infirmed, perhaps uh, mentally deficient. You know, he, he said he impeached President Bush when obviously that didn't happen. Uh, Nadler has called Maloney gullible. Uh, he also called her cowardly for voting for the Patriot Act right after 9-11. And so, uh, you know, fun to watch these people. I mean, almost ideologically identical. As you point out, there are some differences over their 30 years, but vastly similar. So we're going to get a far left Dem, but to watch two Dems eat each other up here uh, in a high-profile race, kind of fun. Depending on your perspective, this is either hilarious or a little bit depressing um, because this was set up, by the way, by a court-ordered redistricting. It wasn't like one had deliberately set out to target the other. Uh, I don't live in New York City. I grew up not far from it. One represents the Upper West Side. One represents the Upper East Side. And apparently, to hear some of the people up there describe it, this is like East and West Berlin. This is like just totally different, uh, (laughs) depending on which side of Central Park you're on. I I think most of us outside of New York City would look at the two and say, nah, they're both progressive liberal Democrats. This is, you know, not dramatically different in their voting records, in their ideology, and, you know, this doesn't happen very often in politics, but every once in a while you'll get a clash of the titans. Two of them, they both, neither one of them was willing to move to another district. Uh, they've been adjacent to districts for a really long time. They've worked together for a very long time. And I think what stuck out to me is that both of them describe each other as friends, or at least they did. And they've now spent with the, the last couple of months of this primary just absolutely trying to destroy each other. 
Now, you'd like to think, no, I, I, I guess it's part of it is like whether it's a politics friend or a real friend. My guess is if you've actually spent 30 years you know, working alongside someone, you probably have at least some genuine affection, some genuine appreciation for them. And if you can't stay in Congress for your 31st and 32nd year, you'd probably like to think, well, if nothing else, at least my good friend's going to represent it. They pretty much believe the same things that I do. We've had you know, 10% of the time on big votes, we voted differently over the last 30 some years. Really, you know, by and large, my district is gonna be in good hands. Everything's gonna be okay. Like, you'd like to think that, okay, well, if I can't win, at least this person gets to take over. That mentality is completely gone and they are hell bent on each painting the other as absolutely terrible and incompetent and lazy and taking credit for other people's work. And they're just undermining each other left and right. So as I, as I wrote this morning, I'm not a progressive, I'm not a Democrat, I don't live in this district, but if, if I did have a vote, I'd vote for Patel because Patel stabs you from the front. <laughs> he doesn't pretend to be friends with either one of them. He never claimed to be friends with either one of them. And I think this is an indication that if you spend enough time in politics, it really does start to eat your brain. It really does start to corrode your soul because neither one of these 30-year Democrats is capable of saying, I really want to win. I think I'm the best choice. But you know what? If if Maloney wins or if Nadler wins, my constituents will be well represented. They can't. There's no part of them left that still has that mentality. The only thing that matters to them is winning. And in the end, I think it's, you know, never mind your judgment on ideology or politics. I think that just makes you a terrible human being. I think that indicates you you desire one more term after 15, much more than treating your alleged friend with respect. And even if they're not friends, somebody who else has been alongside you fighting for the same things for 30 years, they don't deserve a little bit of respect. Like, you know, Maloney is really comfortable arguing that Nadler has gone senile. And, you know, Nadler is comfortable calling her cowardly and gullible at this point. I mean, it's the New York Magazine put it. These people act like they hate each other. And I think they do. And I think that reveals something that in the end, if you are in politics long enough, somebody who threatens your power is someone you hate regardless of all other considerations. And in the end, you know, I, I, look, I think the polling indicates Nadler is going to win. He's probably going to win pretty comfortably. But uh, the district lines seem to favor him a little bit. But in the end, I think this is just kind of an indicator. These are two terrible people. And, uh, you know, so the good news is uh, one way or another, there will be one less terrible person in Congress starting in January. Well, unless Patel wins, um, whoever does win is going to once again refer to their vanquished colleague as their good friend, who they've worked side by side with for 30 years. And I look forward to coalescing to win in November and yada, yada, yada. I mean, politics does this. Uh, we see it in presidential primaries. You know, we, you had, you know, Bush and Dole back in 88. And then by the time Bush dies, Dole is snapping the salute in the Capitol Rotunda and so forth. And so, you know, there's ambition. There's the the desire to get power or to keep power. Sometimes it's legitimately the, the belief that your agenda is far better than the others. But when you're in the race, you want to win. And so it, it, it can definitely get ugly. But I think some people are surprised by just how ugly this one's gotten. So we'll see how it goes tomorrow night. The sense of entitlement, right? It's not like either one of them is like this, you know, young buck, ready to go up to Capitol Hill and do great things. They've both had long careers, right? I don't know if the senility charge is accurate, but they're both in their mid-70s. It's not like, oh, they're cheating me out of my chance to be this, you know. No, most of what Maloney and Nadler have done in their careers, they've done. This is, you know, they're riding off to the sunset from here. So that's the other aspect I just find mind-boggling about this. 
And uh, it's also very revealing that there's not a single person around them who can say, whoa, 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 this is somebody you've been working with for three decades. Why don't you, why don't you, you know, lighten up a little bit or, or take it easy on them? You know, it doesn't exist in New York politics. And I think that in New York, I think it says a bit about both them. And I think also like the, the effect of political campaigning on our sense of right and wrong. No, absolutely. Absolutely. Well, it's always fun watching the Democrats beat each other up. But uh, if only it was a race where the Republican had a chance. This is not one of those. So that's the only entertainment we get from this race. All right, Jim, on to our crazy martini now. And once again, there's a significant transportation issue in the news. And once again, Pete Buttigieg, the transportation secretary, really doesn't seem to have any idea how to deal with it. First, it was a supply chain crisis. Um, people will point to the fact that the backlog on the West Coast has gotten better. In the meantime, the backlog on the East Coast, at least until recently, I don't know what it's done recently, but uh, relatively recently, it was far worse. So that problem is not completely solved, even though there might be progress. But now we have the issue of the delayed flights. If you spent any considerable time flying this summer, you probably know, and maybe you experienced the fact that there were lots of delays. Some of it was due to weather. A lot of it, not so much due to weather. There were crew shortages, and most significantly, there were pilot shortages, perhaps due in part to the fact that there are mandatory retirement ages and so forth. But uh, Jazz Shaw over at Hot Air puts this together and says that uh, Buttigieg is trying to look tough here, but he really doesn't have any solutions. He said, uh, This is from a uh, story on NBC. After a punishing summer for air travelers who have seen delayed and canceled flights, the federal government is taking additional steps to help beleaguered passengers. The Department of Transportation is telling the airlines that they need to come up with their own improvements for customer service or the agency will proceed with a plan to order a rule change. The Department of Transportation is also creating a website, Jim, eyed for launch two weeks from now that they hope will easily show each airline's policies regarding cancellations and delays. Now, Jazz Shaw points out that by the time you're telling your story to the DOT about your cancellation or delay, the problem's over. I mean, you, you missed your flight or, or you got there late or whatever it is. You missed your connection. There's not a solution in the moment. Uh, he also says, uh, and I love this writing, um, as it relates to the pilot shortages, uh, Mayor Pete can't really do anything about this. I understand that he very much wants to make it look like the Biden administration is doing something about the air travel mess we're seeing, but you can't make more pilots suddenly appear by passing a rule change at the Department of Transportation. That's like fighting climate change by having Congress pass a new law making it illegal for the temperature to rise above 90 degrees. It's just not going to work. So, Jim, once again, Mayor Pete, who loves his bike paths, in over his head. Yeah, now I'm going to make one... I'm not even going to say defense of Buttigieg because I don't think the stop doing that, stop making those delays, airlines. I don't really think that's a very effective strategy. But I, I read something that kind of stuck with me. Uh, this was actually back in late June. Carol Markowitz, who's a really good writer at the New York Post, pointed out how terrible airline service had become, how widespread the delays were, how much, how many people were reporting, you know, lost luggage and things like that. She pointed out that we gave the airlines $50 billion during the pandemic because, look, you know, a pandemic shuts down society. Nobody can get on planes. Nobody can travel. The airlines don't have any passengers. So they're really, you know, up a certain creek without a paddle. And Americans said, OK, well, we don't want you all to go out of business. So we're going to give you $50 billion to, to keep yourself going under the expectation that once we got out of the pandemic, the airlines would be doing fine. And yet, you know, the, the line from the airlines is, ah, you know, we used to have so many challenges, you know, 
Uh, so many pilots retired. So many. And so Carol asked, what did we get for our 50 billion? Are we living in an era of revenge tourism where people who were not able to travel from 2020 and 2021 now are going on trips in summer 2022? Yeah, okay, that's gonna be a factor. Uh, things like the weather, I get it. You know, the airlines can't do anything about that. I am reminded of the woman in uh, Palm Springs who was very, very upset about the flight from San Francisco being delayed arriving. The woman behind the, behind the counter kept explaining, well, it's because of fog. Airlines cannot take off in fog. And this woman who was very upset explained that she was a Emerald Gold Star Rewards member. And that as a result of that, the fog should not affect her flight. And I kept trying to, you know, got chuckling behind her helpfully, pointing out that it doesn't matter who you are, the airplane cannot take off if there's fog. Airlines really have let something, you know, slip. Either they really drastically underestimated how many employees they were going to need when they came back. It certainly seemed like they let pilots retire and did not take steps to make sure they would be able to fill in the gap once the passengers came back. It just seems like uh, the entire airline industry has been very slow and very sluggish to get back to full capacity after the pandemic and nobody, you know, nothing, nothing makes drives people battier than when they try to get, you know, talk to an airline representative to figure out what happened to their bag. What should they do because their flight has been delayed? What should they do because they're not going to make their uh, connecting flight? What should they do because their flight has been canceled? They've really absolutely come crashed and burned. Like maybe I shouldn't use that metaphor. They've really done a terrible job when it comes to customer service. And there are fair questions to ask. Having said that, for Pete Buttigieg, Resurfacing the sidewalks and smart sewer management in uh, South Bend did not actually turn out to be relevant experience for the Secretary of Transportation. Well, Jim, quite a start to the week. Fauci's uh, hitting the exits. We're going to have a, a fun, ugly Democratic primary to watch tomorrow night in New York City. And once again, Pete Buttigieg doesn't know what he's doing. So uh, what else is new? See you tomorrow. See you tomorrow, Greg. Jim Garrity, National Review. I'm Greg Columbus, Radio America. Thanks so much for being with us today. Do subscribe to the podcast if you don't already. Tell a friend about us as well. Also, remember to uh, give us your five-star ratings and your kind reviews. They really are a huge help to us. Find us on those home devices. All you have to say is play Three Martini Lunch Podcast. Again, uh, you can order Jim's brand new thriller, Gathering Five Storms. It officially launches tomorrow, but you can still pre-order it today. And then there's a short story that uh, you can get for just 99 cents, Saving the Devil. Uh, get us on Twitter. He's at Jim Garrity. I'm at Dateline underscore DC. Have a great Monday and join us again on Tuesday for the next Three Martini Lunch. California Congressman Mike Garcia joins me to explain how he's trying to prevent the United States from becoming like his own state. I'm Sarah Carter. On the latest Sarah Carter Show, Congressman Garcia and I also discuss the latest on Biden's dereliction of duty at the border and his complete debacle in Afghanistan. And I'll react to the 14 FBI whistleblowers warning of how the leadership is playing politics with the Trump raid. Follow the Sarah Carter Show at Apple, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts.